From claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. EWTN Radio presents The Miracle Hunter with Michael O'Neill. Welcome to The Miracle Hunter Radio Show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm The Miracle Hunter. Hey, we've got a great show ahead for you today. We're going to be looking at one of the most famous uh, feast days from North America, the Virgin Mary, and that is Our Lady of Charity from Cuba. We'll be speaking with Maria Morera Johnson uh, today about uh, how that great devotion has influenced her life of faith and how uh, that has influenced that nation as well. And also, of course, you've heard of Padre Pio, the great Capuchin saint, the miracle worker. Uh, did you know there's another uh, Padre Pio, so to speak, another Capuchin uh, who knew Padre Pio, who also was gifted with uh, mystical phenomena as well? And that is uh, Padre Domenico, uh, whose death anniversary is uh, this week. We'll be talking with his great nephew about some of the mystical phenomena that surrounded his, uh, his, his great uncle, who's on the path to sainthood. Uh, check out uh, my episode of Explore with the Miracle Hunter this week if you actually want to find out about uh, Padre Pio. Most people, most Catholics know about this great miracle-working saint, but we'll be traveling uh, on the program tonight, uh, September 17th, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, the program Explore with the Miracle Hunter goes to San Giovanni Rotondo. We'll be looking to meet the man known worldwide for his healing miracles by location and exhibiting the wounds of Christ in the stigmata. Very timely, we'll be talking a bit about Padre Pio today. Uh, check that one out to see some of the great things uh, that saint is known for. And next week, on September 24th, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time on Explore with the Miracle Hunter. We'll be going to the Italian city of Assisi. This gave rise to two of history's most celebrated saints. Uh, we'll be going to follow the trail of St. Francis, the first person to bear the stigmata, and St. Clair, his wonder-working follower. Uh, going to Assisi was one of the most beautiful places I've ever been to. It was uh, absolutely breathtaking. So we'll be showing you some of that footage in that program next week on September 24th. And of course, you can check out my series, They Might Be Saints, which airs on Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, on uh, September 23rd, on Friday at uh, 5 p.m. Eastern, we'll be looking at Monse Grasses, and we'll be examining the saintly life of this cheerful 17-year-old who faced cancer with extraordinary faith and joy, and she could be the first woman of Opus Dei to be declared a saint. And so that's next week, September 23rd at 5 p.m. Uh, learn about Monse Grasses in the next episode of They Might Be Saints. You can also pick up the book, They Might Be Saints, from EWTN Religious Catalog, along with with my latest book, Science and the Miraculous, How the Church Investigates the Supernatural. It's out from 10 books, and you can get that at EWTNRC.com. So this week, we're going to be uh, looking at uh, the 365 Days with Mary project, like we always do. We always find the Marian devotion of the day as it lines up exactly to the day's date. For September 17th, we've got the icon of the Mother of God, the unburnt bush uh, from Mount Sinai in Egypt in the 3rd century. And the might-be saint of the day is Blessed Louis Alamond from France, who lived from 1380 to 1450. And the question of the week this week, we'll be trying to tackle this one, uh, the question was, in all the apparitions you've investigated, to what extent is healing a key feature? We'll be trying to answer that one later in the show. Let's take a look at Catholic Pub Trivia. Each week I ask a trivia question and give out a prize to an emailer who writes in the fastest with the right answer. Last week we asked the question, who is the first person beatified on American soil? And that was Miriam Teresa Demjanovic of New Jersey. And uh, this is a very recent uh, beatification, of course, uh, and you might wonder, what about all the 
other uh, American saints who preceded her, or blessed, we should say. And in that case, those people have all been beatified uh, under Pope John Paul II and earlier when it was in Rome. And it was only under Pope Benedict and beyond that we've seen beatifications on the pla- at the place where that person lived and died. So that was Miriam Teresa Demjanovic. She was one of the episodes of They Might Be Saints, one of my favorite ones. So check that one out when you get a chance. Now, this week's question, we're doing an interview with the great-nephew of Padre Domenico's uh, great-nephew. And uh, Padre Domenico, like uh, Padre Pio, was a Capuchin friar. And so the question for this week is, what animal indigenous to South America is named after the Capuchin friars? If you think you know that answer and want to win the prize, send an email to Miracle Hunter. Go to MiracleHunter.com and contact me that way. And uh, answers and winners will be posted on the show page on MiracleHunter.com. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be speaking with Maria Moreira Johnson, author of Our Lady of Charity, How a Cuban Devotion to Mary Helped Me Grow in Faith and Love. We'll be talking about that incredible feast day of Our Lady of Charity in just a bit. Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN Radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. And this past week, we celebrated a a big feast day or anniversary, of course, that is the uh, birth of the Mother of God, Mary's birthday. And around the world, if you travel around the world, you'll see that uh, some of the most famous uh, devotions around the world are celebrated with big feast days and celebrations on September 8th in commemoration of Mary. There are other dates throughout the year as well, uh, the Immaculate Conception and others, uh, in which, and the Annunciation perhaps, uh, where we see other feast days. But September 8th is probably uh, the most widely celebrated feast day around the world. And when we talk about uh, miracles of Mary that have happened here in North America, one of the most preeminent ones is Our Lady of Charity, Nuestra Señora de Caridad del Cobre, from Cuba. And this is one that you'll see many times uh, listed amongst the most famous uh, titles of Mary, uh, especially from North America, but in in this half of the world. We're so excited today to be joined again by Maria Moreira Johnson. She's the author of the book, Our Lady of Charity. Welcome back to the show today, Maria. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. How are you? It's great to talk to you again. And this is a a big feast day, of course, the the birth of Mary and Our Lady of Charity uh, from Cuba is also celebrated uh, for its own right as a a great uh, miracle and a meaningful title of Mary. Uh, Tell us, first of all, how did you get interested in in Our Lady of Charity so much so that you would write a book about her? Well, it has everything to do with my heritage. I was born in Cuba, and so the image of Mary that I grew up with is Our Lady of Charity. And so, of course, you know, we love our mother, and she's she's the title of, of our mother that I came to know and love. So it was a natural for me to write a, a book about her. Absolutely. It's so interesting. I think that uh, many Americans uh, do not know the title of Our Lady of Charity, and I think it's an important one. And it's one that's been recognized even by popes who have visited uh, Cuba, for example. Um, that image has been crowned and celebrated during papal visits. And of course, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a title of great meaning for the Cuban people. Um, have you been to Cuba in, in the time of a, a festival or a feast day or a celebration of Our Lady of Charity? What would that be like? Well, um, you know, Cuba is a communist nation, and um, and the church is suppressed. So public public displays are often um, 
not just frowned upon, but, but actually illegal. However, um, in, in uh, 2012, which was the 400th anniversary of, of uh, the three men who found this, this miraculous statue of Mary, uh, there was a dispensation that was given, and there was a beautiful, beautiful procession all around Cuba with the original statue. And, um, and so Our Lady of Charity was taken to every, every place in Cuba that, that she could go in. And the beauty of it is that this procession entered hospitals and entered prisons. And here's the big ticket item from this whole thing. You know that the Blessed Mother always leads us to her son, Jesus Christ, right? That's right. That's right. Guess what they placed behind the statue of Mary? There was a monstrance with the Blessed Sacrament. Mm. So, um, so there was an enormous, enormous blessing. And it took about three years for this procession to go throughout the island. That is um, amazing. And I, it was. And that was that was a miracle that rivaled the appearance of the statue. And if you don't mind for your listeners, I'd like to tell the story of, of that of that um of that statue. That would be wonderful. We're, we're talking today with Maria Mora Johnson, Mora Johnson, the author of Our Lady of Charity, How a Cuban Devotion to Mary Helped Me Grow in Faith and Love from Ave Maria Press. Um, but yes, let's take it back. Let's, let's paint the picture of what happened. What is being celebrated in this miraculous event? So in 1612, um, at the height of, of abuses to the indigenous population of Cuba, with the slaves that were being part is brought into Cuba as as a jumping off point for the for the rest of the Americas. Um, there there were you know uh, slaves and indentured servants working in copper mines on the eastern point of Cuba, and one day three men, uh, two indigenous brothers, uh, perhaps Taino Indian, and uh, a young slave African slave boy went out into the marshes of of uh, the Bay of Nipe to gather salt. And probably a hurricane came up, and they were caught out in, in the open waters. And they had been catechized, and they had a great devotion to the Blessed Mother, and they called upon Mary to, to save them. And immediately uh, the storm ceased, and in the calm waters they, they, had, they saw this statue that had kind of floated up to them and was a kind of, you know, beating against the side of their canoe, and when they pulled it out of the water, the statue was lashed to a little board. And the miracle is that the statue is made of clay, but it wasn't wet. And um, and so they took that as a sign that the Blessed Mother had, in fact, interceded for them and for their safety. And so they took the statue back to um, Badahawa, a little town very close to where they were, and they built the very first shrine made out of palm fronds. Um, at where they venerated the Blessed Mother. Amazing. And what has transpired since this miracle as far as a basilica or the devotion growing? What, what has happened uh, after the discovery of the statue? Well, uh, so, so the devotion to this, to this image of Mary um, made its way down into the copper mines. And what's beautiful about this particular veneration of Mary is that um, she's she's kind of racially ambiguous because she's made of clay. She looks like whoever you want her to look like. Mm. She looks like your mother and my mother and anyone's mother. And so uh, the the veneration to the to the Blessed Mother as Our Lady of Charity 
just grew across the island. And in 1927, I think, um, they finally built the Basilica in Santiago, which which currently exists and houses the statue. Um, and it's a, it's a beautiful pilgrimage site. And what's wonderful about it is that it's built above the copper mine. So it's a constant reminder to us that Mary comes to her children in their time of need, um, the most depressed and the most in need of her. Wonderful. We're talking today with Maria Moreira Johnson, author of Our Lady of Charity, How a Cuban Devotion to Mary Helped Me Grow in Faith and Love. And for you personally, having this uh, devotion as a young child and, and into your adulthood, uh, it's still it's still an important enough devotion that you would write a whole book about it. Um, how does this devotion play out in your life of faith? Well, I think it's it's a great it's a great devotion for the times in which we live, and and I really wanted to share her story with with the rest of of the North American brothers and sisters, and actually the world, because this this particular image of Mary is unique, because in it we see both the incarnation and the passion. If you look at the statue of Our Lady of Charity, she's holding Jesus under under her heart in her left hand, but in her right hand she's carrying a cross. And I think that when we look at images of Mary, we see, you know, a rosary or flowers or any number of objects that she might be carrying. But I think that this is the one image that, that has the entire gospel in it. That's incredible. We're talking today with Maria Murray Johnson about Our Lady of Charity. And for people who pick up your book, what is your hope for, uh, they'll learn the story of Our Lady of Charity, but what are they going to take away from it as far as bringing Mary under this title into their own lives? Well, I think that the fact that she came to her children when they were, you know, in a storm um, is just so perfect for our times. I think everything is a storm socially, worldwide. We have so many things happening in our world today that she is a beautiful safe harbor for us to put our hopes and our dreams and our fears, um, you know, into into her arms where she'll cradle us like she cradled the baby Jesus. Wonderful. And for people who want to pick out the pick up this book or find out more about you and your work, what's the best place where people can go? Well, you can get the book. Um, I prefer that you look for uh, Catholic vendors, um, but you can buy it directly from Ave Maria Press. It's also on Amazon, and um, and you can learn more about me and the things that I'm doing at my website, mariamjohnson.com. And tomorrow, I will be launching Season 2 of my podcast, uh, Badass Saints and Extraordinary Women, and it will feature the story of Our Lady of Charity. So I hope that you'll tune into that. Wonderful. Well, that, that's exciting news. We'll have to have you back on the show to to talk about that podcast and see how it's going. Uh, I love the I love the title that uh, hopefully inspires some people to tune in. We've been talking today with Maria Maria Johnson about her book, Our Lady of Charity: How a Cuban Devotion to Mary Helped Me Grow in Faith and Love. Thank you so much, Maria, for joining us on today's program. It's a pleasure. Thank you. God bless. That was Maria Moreira Johnson, author of the book, Our Lady of Charity, How a Cuban Devotion to Mary Helped Me Grow in Faith and Love. That's from Ave Maria Press. Perfect timing to talk about this with uh, the feast day of September 8th, uh, just in our rearview mirror. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be looking at the question of the week. Stay with us for that.
Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. I love getting your questions. People write in from around the world with questions about miracles happening in today's world and those that have happened centuries ago. And uh, one question that I got recently from Jennifer, she asks, in all of the apparitions that you have investigated, to what extent is healing a key feature? Why do you think this is so? Well, thanks, Jennifer, for that question. Uh, And it's an interesting one. I think that uh, the question probably implies if Mary is truly appearing in a place, uh, doesn't it only need to be shown that Mary is appearing, not that there are healings that are happening as a result? And uh, one of the interesting things is that healings are commonly associated with apparitions, uh, most famously at Lourdes, those 1858 apparitions where Mary appeared 18 times to St. Bernadette Subru there in Lourdes in France. And um, one of the things, at least it listed in the uh, Vatican's official 1978 rule book, the norms for the congregation in, in proceeding and judging alleged private revolution, revelations and apparitions, uh, they talk about the good fruits of a true apparition. So we'll see uh, things like uh, conversions of people, the return to the sacraments, uh, the life of faith that grows, and the good fruits such as healings. And so uh, when the uh, Congregation for the Cause of Saints, and most specifically uh, the local bishop who initiates the investigation before it even gets that far, one of the things that they look at is to make sure that the uh, the visionary is of sound mind, that the uh, the messages that they're claiming to receive uh, match up to church teaching, that there's no uh, no contradiction between church uh, dogma and, and the things that are being uh, purportedly proposed by uh, a vision of the Virgin Mary. And uh, they also look at things like healing miracles. And so that's an important aspect, that there are these good fruits that come from that. And one of these good fruits is, is considered to be healings. And so uh, places like Lourdes, most famously, or even like Champion, Wisconsin, uh, that those 1858 apparitions to uh, Adele Bryce, uh, the Belgian farm worker here in the United States, uh, they look at the healing miracles that have sprung from that location. And uh, oftentimes there's a, a commission that goes into looking at those healing miracles as well. Even one of the new episodes of Explore with the Miracle Hunter, uh, Boorang in Belgium, a 1932 apparition that's uh, recognized by the Vatican, uh, they actually had a formal investigation into some of the miracles that were claimed at that site as well. So this is an essential part of a Marian apparition approval process to make sure that there are truly good fruits of that apparition. So thanks, Jennifer, for your question. And if you have a question for the Miracle Hunter, you can send me an email to uh, miraclehunter at EWTN or just go to my website, miraclehunter.com. Send me a message that way and we'll be answers and winners or the, uh, the questions will be answered on the show next week. Let's take a look at the 365 Days with Mary project. We do this every week where we look at the Marian devotion of the day that lines up exactly to the calendar date. You all know Fatima, May 13th, Lourdes, February 11th, or Guadalupe, December 12th. But believe it or not, there's a different other Marian devotion on each day of the calendar year that lines up to a feast day or a miraculous event or another commemoration uh, for Mary under a title in which she's honored all around the world. And so for September 17th, today, we've got the icon of the Mother of God, the burning bush from Mount Sinai in Egypt in the third century. And the story goes that uh, there was a fire which was consuming several wooden buildings. And in the midst of that fire, an old woman stood in front of her house holding an icon of Mary, the unburnt bush. A witness happened to see her there and marveled at her faith. 
The next day, he returned to the spot, and he was astonished to see the old woman's home completely unscathed by the fire, while all the other houses around it were completely destroyed. And this may explain why the Mother of God under this title is regarded as the protector of homes from fire. It is believed that the earliest icons of the unburned bush originated at St. Catherine's Monastery on Mount Sinai. And that's the Marian devotion of the day uh, for September 17th, the icon of the Mother of God, the unburned bush from Mount Sinai in Egypt in the 3rd century. For more information on this fascinating devotion or any of the hundreds of other Marian devotions from around the world, you can go to the website 365dayswithmary.com or you can go to the Facebook page where you can join any of the 10,000 other followers who get a new title of Mary uh, on their Facebook page each and every day. Let's take a look at the sainthood news. We do this every week where we talk about the saints on the path to sainthood. We're talking about servants of God, venerables, blessed before they become saints. And uh, once in a while, every so many months, the, the church comes out with these uh, dicasteries or these consistories, I should say, in which uh, the Pope meets with uh, Cardinal Marcello Samararo, the prefect of the dicastery of the cause of saints. And during these audiences, he authorizes this uh, dicastery to promulgate a decree and so we have a decree uh, from a few weeks ago, the heroic virtues of the servant of God, Vitor Coilo de Almeida, the professed priest of the Congregation of the, Con of the Most Holy Redeemer, born on September 22nd, 1899 in Sacramento, Brazil, and he died on July 21st in 1987 in Guaratingueta in Brazil as well. And so, uh, according to the Congregation for the Cause of Saints website, he was this professed priest of this congregation, and he was animated by an extraordinary missionary spirit, and he loved being amongst the people. And he aroused various vocations and made numerous missionary trips with the statue of Our Lady of Aparecida, that is uh, Brazil's most famous Marian icon, reaching different areas of Brazil. And so that is, uh, we have a new venerable in our church, and that is uh, Vitor Coilo de Almeida. With one miracle, he will be declared a blessed in the future. Let's take a look at the might-be saint of the day. We do this every week where we look at the person who's got a feast day that lines up exactly to the day's date, who's on the path to sainthood. Again, we're looking at uh, servants of God, venables, and blesseds at this point. And so we've got Blessed Louis Alamond, who lived from 1380 to 1450, and he lived in France, and his memorial is today. And uh, he was born in 1380 in Arben Castle in the Diocese of Belay in France, and he was born to French nobility. He was a canon lawyer. He became the Bishop of Megalone in France in 1418. He was the advisor, courtier, and diplomat in service to Pope Martin V. He became the Archbishop of Arte in France in 1423, and he, created, he was created the Cardinal Priest of Santa Cecilia in 1426. He became an important member of the Council of Bale in 1436, leading the party that maintained the supremacy of general councils over the Pope in working to forward the decree of the Immaculate Conception of Our Lady. While he was there, he worked with victims of a plague outbreak. In 1439, in a misguided attempt at church reform, Alamond was primarily responsible for the election of the anti-Pope Felix V, which led to Pope Eugenius IV excommunicating them both. Alamon consecrated Felix as bishop, then crowned him as pope. And uh, that's quite a thing. He was also primarily responsible for ending the schism by convincing Felix to abdicate. Pope Nicholas V was elected. He restored Alamon to all his honors and offices and made him papal legate to Germany in 1449. 
Vatican politics aside, Aleman was always known for a strong faith, personal piety, and is a dedicated shepherd of his diocese. And he died on September 16, 1450, and beatified in 1527 by Pope Clement VII. What an incredible uh, path to sainthood uh, for Blessed, er, blessed, Aleman, uh, blessed Louis Aleman, who lived from 1380 to 1450 in France. With one more miracle, he will be declared a saint. For more information on They Might Be Saints, you can go to the website, theymightbesaints.com, and you can tune into the program, They Might Be Saints, which airs every week at, on Fridays at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, this week, we'll be looking at an episode of They Might Be Saints about Monse Grasses, We'll be examining the saintly life of this cheerful 17-year-old who faced cancer with extraordinary faith and joy, and she could be the first woman of Opus Dei to be declared a saint. And that program is on September 23rd at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. We need to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to be looking into the life of Padre Domenico. You've all heard of Padre Pio, but could there be another who's on the path to sainthood? Stay with us for that. Now, back to the Miracle Hunter on EWTN. Here's Michael O'Neill. Welcome back. You're listening to the Miracle Hunter radio show on EWTN radio. This is Michael O'Neill. I'm the Miracle Hunter. People who tune into EWTN may have seen my special on Padre Pio called Miracles of Padre Pio. He's also someone we talk about often on this uh, in this radio show, and uh, many people consider him to be the greatest of all miracle-working saints, in, in a modern sense anyway. And so uh, his uh, life of faith almost seems singular in that uh, there's nobody else like him out there. Well, there's uh, another uh, a Capuchin uh, priest. His name is... Uh, uh, Padre Domenico, and uh, September 20th is the uh, de- his death anniversary. So it's a great time to get to know this servant of God who is on the path to sainthood as well. And uh, many people have not heard this name, especially here in the United States. They don't know about uh, Padre Domenico, the compatriot of Padre Pio. And we're so grateful to be joined today by someone who knows his story as well as anyone out there, and that's his great-nephew, Lorenzo Petraca, and he's joining us all the way from Italy today. Welcome to the show today, Lorenzo. Hi, welcome, welcome. Yeah, it's it's wonderful uh, that you uh, are able to join us and, and talk to us about your great uncle, and many Americans don't know the name Padre Domenico. Everybody knows uh, Padre Pio, but they don't know Padre Domenico. Mm-hmm. So if, if we can just uh, paint a very basic picture of his life, who was Padre Domenico? Okay, I am uh, the great nephew of uh, Padre Domenico, and uh, Padre Domenico da Cese was born uh, Emidio Petracca on uh, March 27 in uh, 1905 uh, to Caterina and uh, Giovanni Petracca. Giovanni Petracca is uh, my grandfather and uh, Padre Domenico was born in a small village of Cese in uh, Abruzzo, in a region of Italy. Mm -hmm. And uh, Padre Domenico at the young age of four was diagnosed with infantile paralysis and uh, was at the time uh, and only child. 
His mother, Caterina, uh, took the young child to the local church and desperately prayed uh, to Mary, the mother of God, placing him on the altar uh, dedicated to her. And uh, suddenly, Emilio began uh, to move his legs. He was uh, miraculously cured. But um, a very special episode is uh, when Emilio predicted an earthquake. Uh, however, but uh, no one listened to him. But uh, on the following day, January 13, uh, 1915, a catastrophic magnitude earthquake struck the Abruzzo region, killing a lot and a lot of people, including his two young sisters. Mm. But uh, Emidio, during uh, this earthquake, Emidio um, and his father were buried beneath the rubble of the collapsed church until a stranger a stranger man pulled them out this uh, stranger man <laughs> uh, a lot of uh, year uh, uh, after uh, Emidio would see the, the face of the stranger again in fact this uh, man was uh, the Volto Santo in Manopello, and uh, Padre Domenico recognized uh, him for the first time in uh, 1966. So, so, so to, ask, to, to ask you a question, uh, the, the, uh, they were buried under, under the rubble because of the earthquake, and there was a man who lifted them out of the rubble, and the face of the man looked like the image of Manopello, is that correct? Yes, yes, he recognized the face because uh, the face of uh, Jesus in uh, in Manopello is um, not with the, with the blood, but uh, in uh, during the earthquake, Padre Domenico see exactly the same face of Manopello but with the blood. So it's very and very important uh, thing this because uh, from this stranger man he, he can recognize uh, the true Jesus hmm. and uh, padre for the first time um, padre domenico uh, had um, had a very close uh, relationship with uh, padre pio and um, they meet for the first time in uh, 1940 in San Giovanni Rotondo, because um, they have a very close relationship, uh, especially for the Volto Santo, for the Veil. So, uh, so Padre Domenico Padre Pio, was, a, yes. was a, a friend of Padre Pio, and did they, they're both Capuchin yes. priests. Did they both live in uh, San Giovanni Rotondo, or was uh, uh, Padre Domenico living in Manopello? No, no, no. Padre Domenico, before uh, living uh, in uh, in Abruzzo region, in uh, a lot of convent, uh, different convent, uh, Manopello, but before uh, Penne, uh, before uh, Trasacco, but mm, never in uh, in San Giovanni Rotondo. But uh, he traveled a lot, and 
i, i know he had the possibility to know Padre Pio mm. and uh, for the first time uh, he, in 1940 in San Giovanni Rotondo but Padre Pio always directed uh, the faithful uh, to his spiritual son giving them precious direction on where to go um, Padre Pio often said why you do not go to Padre Domenico in the Abruzzo and save the whole trip is just like me <laughs> these words uh, are always in uh, Padre Pio is just like me and uh, on September uh, 22th uh, in uh, 1968, uh, we have uh, uh, an important event because uh, Padre Pio celebrated uh, his last mass. At uh, the end, uh, he collapsed to the ground. But at the same time, when Padre Domenico was about to take uh, his place in the choir, uh, in Manopello to pray, uh, Padre Pio was uh, sitting in his place, so we have uh, the mm. bilocation uh, of uh, Padre Pio. And, yes, uh, an amazing case after, of bilocation, yes. yes, right. Yes, and after this bilocation, uh, Padre Domenico will do a bilocation. But uh, before, uh, Padre Domenico, when uh, was sitting uh, to, to pray and uh, so Padre Pio asked him, Padre Pio, what are you doing here? And he replied, I do not have faith in myself any longer. Pray for me. Hmm. As they pray together, uh, Padre Pio then said, we will meet again in paradise. Hmm. And uh, on September 26th, uh, the funeral took place in San Giovanni Rotondo. However, Padre Domenico could not attend uh, as uh, they required a group of pilgrims, and uh, that was confirmed by several witnesses. But uh, Padre Domenico had uh, the gift of bilocation as Padre Pio, so he was in, in the funeral. At the same time, he was uh, in the funeral of Padre Pio in San Giovanni Rotondo and in Manopello. Mm. So it, it's uh, really fantastic, this. And um, we have uh, a video on uh, YouTube about this, uh, this bilocation of Padre Domenico. In fact, uh, Padre Domenico is uh, the first uh, person who, who is... Uh, of the first bilocation code on a film hmm. and uh, this, the video was uh, showcasing uh, the actual footage uh, of the first bilocation so it's uh, a very important event because uh, no one uh, he tried or uh, called a, a bilocation so uh, this is very important. In yeah, this, this is amazing. Can... I'm going to find the video and I'll post it on the Facebook page of the radio show for the Miracle Hunter so people can see this amazing case as you're talking about it, the very first case of bilocation captured on uh, video. And uh, I will post that for people to see. That sounds absolutely amazing. We're talking today with uh, Lorenzo Petraca, the, the great nephew of the holy Capuchin priest 
and that is Padre Domenico de Sese. And uh, we see a lot of connections between him and St. Padre Pio. Now, you mentioned that uh, Padre Domenico had the gift of bilocation, as did uh, Padre Pio. And Padre Pio was known for many other things as well, with the stigmata and the healing of, 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 of the sick, etc. Was, uh, was, uh, was Padre Domenico known for other uh, miraculous phenomena as well? Yes, uh, Padre Domenico did a lot of uh, miracle because, uh, like uh, Padre Pio, uh, Padre Domenico had uh, the stigmate in uh, in the end and uh, was uh, an exorcist priest. Mm-hmm. So, um, when uh, Padre Domenico also had uh, a lively relationship with uh, the spiritual angel. And uh, some of uh, spiritual children say to have heard him speak during the night with the Lord's angels. And uh, Padre Domenico himself, when uh, people asked about the bilocation, he justified himself as uh, it's uh, my guardian angels who take my appearance to encourage souls who need uh, and he prevent them from uh, failing into sins. And uh, angels were uh, therefore very exciting in the life of Padre Domenico, but uh, they were not the, the only that the Lord Jesus had entrusted him to the custody of uh, an archangel, Michael. Uh, this happened when Padre Domenico offered himself uh, as a victim to the merciful love of Jesus to be helped to wake in front of uh, the temptation of purity, asking uh, for the martyrdom of body and spirit. And uh, Padre Domenico to resist the clashes with the, the devil, battles, and uh, that began when uh, one night. At uh, midnight, uh, Padre Domenico found himself thrown to the ground. <laughs> the devil, uh, with uh, a woman's form, gave him a heavy blow on the forehead on, uh, on the right. <laughs> Padre Domenico lost uh, consciousness and uh, woke up uh, only the following morning, uh, finding mm. himself on the ground with a large hematoma on uh, his forehead mm-hmm. and uh, a scar that uh, will then mark him uh, throughout uh, his life mm. and in An the picture uh, yes in the picture of padre domenico uh, if uh, you took uh, careful on the right uh, on the forehead uh, a little up uh, you can see the the scar Oh, I see. And uh, when uh, Padre Domenico had clashes with the devil, he invoked Jesus to be freed, and uh, San Michael immediately intervened by badly driving out Satana and uh, giving a great help uh, to Padre Domenico. 
That's amazing. So we're, we're talking today with uh, with Lorenzo Petraca about some of the spiritual experiences of Padre Domenico, which were very similar to that of Padre Pio. And we're talking about uh, some of these experiences with where he he's fighting the devil. And uh, as he prays to God, you see the uh, St. Michael, the archangel, coming to his aid to intercede in this battle with the devil. So absolutely amazing, uh, the experiences of uh, Padre Domenico. And like his, uh, like his friend, uh, Padre Pio, he, uh, Padre Domenico is also being considered for sainthood at this time. He's a servant of God. Of course, that's the first of four steps in the canonization process, servant of God, venerable, blessed, yeah. and saint. And uh, I'll ask you, Lorenzo, do you have any updates or any uh, information about uh, how his sainthood caused the, the progress is going for him moving along uh, to the next step of sainthood? Okay, yes. Padre Domenico currently rests uh, in the my family tomb in Cese, Italy. The canonical process uh, was opened uh, by the Holy See in uh, 2013, and uh, in June 2015, the Congregation for the Cause of Science gave the Neil Obstat for the beatification process of Padre Domenico. But uh, for now, the beatification uh, process uh, is uh, is stopped, and uh, because we need a lot of um, of miracle from Padre Domenico. So uh, now I would ask you and to all the people who listen this interview to pray a lot, uh, a lot for uh, Padre Domenico, because uh, who all need a uh, miracle of intercession can pray for Padre Domenico, and I am sure that uh, Padre Domenico uh, will take care of all of uh, us. And uh, if uh, Padre Domenico uh, will do a, a miracle, and uh, now, because uh, the miracle before uh, is are not uh, considered, but if uh, he do a miracle now, he, the beatification process uh, can uh, can go. But for now, is stopped. And uh, we have uh, me and uh, my dear friend uh, Tamara Kaplash. We have uh, a group on uh, Facebook for uh, Padre Domenico Prayers. Wonderful. And uh, the group uh, names on Facebook is Padre Domenico Dacese Information and Prayers. And when people uh, uh, write uh, the, the prayers uh, in the group, I personally take uh, the, the prayer I print uh, this and I put uh, the prayer on uh, the crypt in uh, my family tomb in Cese Wonderful. when uh, Padre Domenico rests, yes. So we're so talking about can, the need uh, for intercessory prayers for, uh, for Domenico ah. de Cese, the uh, servant of God who uh, was the friend of Padre Pio, who also is on the path to sainthood as a servant of God. Uh, he is uh, looking to move him along to venerable, blessed, and then saint, and intercessory miracles are what are needed. So for people who are interested in learning more about this incredible uh, future saint, this uh, man very similar to Padre Pio, uh, they've set up a Facebook page, uh, Domenico Giuseppe, 
um, where you can uh, load your prayers to that uh, Facebook page, and then they get printed out and put on the actual tomb, the family tomb of uh, Padre Domenico, and those prayers are, are, are given to him in that way. So that's a great way for people to uh, engage Padre Domenico and send their prayers uh, through using technology. So we're so grateful to you, Lorenzo Petraca, the great, uh, the great nephew of uh, the future saint, uh, Padre Domenico. Thank you so much for joining us on today's program and talking to us about your great uncle and telling us about uh, his path to sainthood. Thank you so much for being with us on today's program. You're welcome. Thanks. Thanks. God bless. And that was uh, Lorenzo Petraca, the great nephew of uh, the uh, future saint, perhaps the servant of God, Domenico de Cese, uh, the good friend of Padre Pio, the compatriot, who uh, who is surrounded by mystical gifts that we've only seen in Padre Pio, perhaps in modern times. He himself bore the stigmata. And there are many healing miracles, but of course, in order for somebody to be declared a saint, those miracles happen need to happen after their death. So uh, stay tuned for uh, this future saint, perhaps, and that's Padre Domenico. And that's all the time we have for today's show. If you miss any of this episode or want to catch up on past episodes, you can go to EWTN.com radio, check out the audio archives for Miracle Hunter, or download the free EWTN app. I'd like to thank our guest, Maria Morera Johnson, author of Our Lady of Charity, and also Lorenzo Petraca, talking to us about his great uncle, Padre Domenico, a miracle worker like Padre Pio, as is being proposed. And tonight, uh, on September 17th, 6 p.m. Eastern Time, we've got Explore with the Miracle Hunter, San Giovanni Rotundo. Uh, learn more about Padre Pio, that great miracle-working saint. We'll be going to Italy to meet the man known worldwide for healing miracles by location and exhibiting the wounds of Christ in the stigmata. Or join me next week, September 24th, at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, Explore with the Miracle Hunter, Assisi. The Italian city of Assisi gave rise to two of history's most celebrated saints. I'll be traveling the trail of... St. Francis, the first to bear the stigmata, and St. Clair, his wonder-working follower. Check out my new book, Science and the Miraculous, How the Church Investigates the Supernatural, out from Tan Books and available from EWTNRC.com. I'd like to thank you today for joining me on Miracle Hunter, where from claims of healings and visions to the world's most inexplicable events, whether you're a believer or a skeptic, the truth is always worth the hunt. Talk to you next week.